turn to the book of Acts, chapter 27. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. As we look at the book of Acts, one of the longest sagas or stories in the entire book is about one event. It's about a voyage and a shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I ask, uh, and as you look in the Bible, you say, why does God give this much space to certain events and then other things that seem to be so important, there's only two or three verses. And so, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. And so we see that uh, this story, in fact, there was a man named James Smith that uh, lived back in the early part of the 1800s. He was a Scotsman. My, uh, the reason I remember his name is because uh, uh, my, I got a brother-in-law by the name of James Smith. But uh, he was a Scotsman. He was a yachtsman. And, uh, of course, it's back in the days of sailing. But uh, he got intrigued with uh, the book of, uh, book of Acts. He like William Ramsey. We've talked a lot about him, the archaeologist, who got saved as a result of studying Luke. But... Uh, we see that, that, that he went, but he knew a lot about the uh, Mediterranean Sea, and he was uh, he'd sailed uh, from one end of it to the other, and he got involved with Acts chapter twenty-seven, and every commentary I've turned to, and I use several. I use some. I've got about ten in my library, but everybody talks about James Smith, and about how that uh, he's written a book called The Voyage and the Shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I've looked on the line or, uh, internet now and it's out of print or it's a rare book now so it costs over 50 bucks and so I'm not going to buy it but uh, there's snippets in it that uh, you can get on the internet and read. But uh, he talks about how that uh, Luke uh, knew and the weather patterns were exactly like that Luke records it. The the idea, the descriptions of the ships and the seacoast and the, the, and the ports like fair havens, that was exactly like he said. And the storm that year, uh, year Clydon or whatever it's called, was actually what we'd call a nor'easter. And again, just exactly at the right time of the years and all this, it was right down the list, the cables that they place around that those ancient ships to keep them from breaking up. And he said that his conclusion was that uh, Luke uh, was extremely accurate, but he wasn't a sailor. In other words, uh, as a sailor, he would have put a lot more nautical terms and all that kind of stuff in there. But he told it as if he was a passenger writing his diary down. The only question I have is if it's a shipwreck, how did he keep his paper dry? You know, or how did he keep his uh, things dry? But this is an exact story. And then why, do, why did he put it in here? And so, of course, the liberals would like to tell you, well, he's just liking to show you that, you know, the, uh, just throwing something in there at the end to, uh, to show his uh, descriptive para, uh, prowess or whatever, because this is one of the only stories of a voyage and shipwreck in the entire ancient literature. Now, it's one of the most graphic of all of them. And so here we have a story that is, of course, if it's in the Bible, and that's what I'm explaining to someone I'm discipling right now, and that is, if it's in the Bible, it's got to be exactly accurate, unless it is a lie. What I mean by that is, uh, if you remember Saul 
uh, when David, there was a man that came and said that Saul was dead. But then he embellished it and said that he killed it. Well, that's a lie, right? But it's recorded in the Bible. The lie was recorded. So the Bible does record lies. But at the same time, of course, it tells the truth about the lies. And so, but if it tells, a, but if it tells you something uh, about science, it has to be exactly right. If it tells you something about history, it has to be exactly right. And we've looked at several things in the book of Acts where Sir William Ramsey went and he started studying uh, Acts to prove that it never happened. Like the Book of Mormon never happened. You can't prove those things that are in the Book of Mormon. But uh, these things that he said, I'm going to prove that the Bible is not true. And he got over and started studying. And the more he did, the more he realized that it was <laughs> everything that Luke, he said, really, Luke is the standard. He's the standard. Everybody else needs to go. We need to evaluate everything else from, from what Luke says. And he was one of the few archaeologists that ever got saved as a result of studying archaeology. But uh, he's written many books uh, from the 1800s or I don't know, through the, the early 1900s. And he became quite a well-known archaeologist and authority on the Word of God simply by trying to disprove it. And so as we turn to the book of Acts and for, for chapter 27, we realize it's exactly as God had meant it to be. And we see that also... If it's true, then why did God put it there? I mean, why did God give us this whole story? Because back in chapter 23, verse 11, we see that the Lord had told Paul that uh, he said that uh, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So Paul, you're going to Rome. Now, Many of us, when we feel like God's telling us to do something, uh, we would think, okay, I'm just going to get in a, pa- in a uh, canoe and paddle there. You know, it's going to be a safe trip there because, after all, God's told me what to do. Well, he's going to go through three sham trials. He's going to go through multiple assassination attempts. He's going to go through being uh, incarcerated in an old crummy jail for t- over two years and now he is going to be put on a, slave, on, a, uh, on a ship that was carrying a lot of captives to Rome to be in the gladiator or whatever and all those games that they would have there or become slaves uh, as they would be taken to Rome. And he's going to be with a bunch of crusty old uh, uh, soldiers as well as sailors. And, uh, and why did God tell us all that? And then, of course, he's going to be in a storm and we want him to get to the point uh, this morning about where he's going to be snake bitten. I mean, he went through all kinds of things in his will, when God's will for you. Let me ask you. Uh, now, I don't want you don't have to raise hands. How many of you feel like you're in the center of God's will right now? Okay. You say, well, as far as I know, you know, I'm in church this morning. I hope that's you know pretty good. Okay. Well, uh, how many of you are facing storms of life? Is it because, now, there again, okay, some people have raised, okay, I don't, didn't mean for you to raise your hands, but uh, many of us are going through some extended periods of storms in our lives. Is that true? Yes. Are you in God's will? 
does that mean that God is buffeting you and trying to, uh, to punish you for things in the past? Are you living in uh, earthly purgatory because of what you've done in the past? Or is it because this is just part of the will of God? Man is born for troubles and sparks fly up. We see that uh, Solomon tells us. And so, yes, you're in the center. You may be in the center of God's will and yet facing some horrible storms. Uh, Sunday school was asked, uh, why does God allow or why do we see murder? Why do we see all these different things on earth? Why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? And so we see that if nothing else, this story that Paul, that we see here, answers those questions. It shows us the omniscience of God that no matter what the problem is, God is on the throne. And if God tells you you're going to get to Rome, you're going to get to Rome. And so we see that this is what God, by the way, if God tells you you're going to get to heaven, folks, guess what? You're going to get there. It might not look like it right now. And it might look pretty bad in life right now. But if you have, if the Lord told you he's giving you eternal life, guess what? This whole world's not your home. Oh my, you might be going through all kinds. You might even uh, physically die in this world, but that's the best thing that can happen because guess what? That just, that just uh, puts you on the road to heaven a lot faster or gets you to heaven a lot faster. And so we see that uh, all things work together for good to them that love God to them that are called according to his purpose. But, you know, as you read this story, you can't, we can't, why did God allow him to go through all this? I mean, hadn't he been beaten enough? Hadn't he been shipwrecked enough? Hadn't he been thrown in jail enough? Why didn't God just give him, you know, a free ticket? Well, he did get a free ticket to Rome, but, uh, but you know, the price he had to pay for it. And so in your life and in my life, as I, we read this, don't try to read something into it. I was, I was mentioning the way they interpreted scripture in Sunday school. Don't try to, like I was reading about one preacher, and there, there's a, a, an area in here that talks about four anchors. And uh, he named them. Well, there's one, you know, one anchor represents the Lord. Right, right on down, I'm saying, uh, anchors are anchors. You know, don't try to get off into that. I mean, he threw four anchors out. That would be my interpretation of it. I don't want to give my interpretation of it other than the fact of what is God teaching me through it and teaching you through it. And so if God's called you to do something, there will be trials. There will be heartaches. There will be testings in life. Now I can see testing comes from above. And so we see the testings that Paul is going through as well as the others. Now, to kind of shorten this or to give you a, a, a brief outline or just a, a skeletal outline, I've uh, named it uh, three different things. First of all, we see friends. We see the atmosphere he's in. Then we see fate. Now, fate, is, we're not talking about uh, fatalism. We're just talking about the situation he gets himself in that seems totally opposite from the first uh, section that he was, uh, the first uh, situation he was in. And then we'll see his faith. And then we'll see, for lack of a better word, to keep the F's uh, uh, in the outline, food, the practicality. that We live by faith and not on it. And so, first of all, we see in chapter 27, verse 1, Then notice he says, and when it was decided 
that we would sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the prisoners, some other prisoners, to one named Julius. So here we see a centurion of the Augustinian regiment. And this was one of those elite uh, regiments that was directly um, directly uh, in line with Caesar. In other words, they'd be a secret service. They would be the people that would be most closely uh, associated with Caesar. And yet he was, they were there for a certain mission, but now they're bringing back uh, certain prisoners. And uh, notice they entered into the ship at Adramedium, uh, and we put to sea, and meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. So again, uh, James Smith tells, uh, could pinpoint each one of those up and down from Lebanon, routing up to present-day Turkey, and what these ships would, these smaller ships would do, they would just hop from port to port. But then as they got to, uh, um, notice, well, first of all, we notice his friends, Aristarchus. Aristarchus had gone through some moths, through some of the uh, violence with Paul and had, uh, had stuck with him through mobs and uh, violence. He was a Macedonian from Thessalonica, one of the first churches at, uh, in Europe that Paul had preached in. He became a lifelong associate with Paul. And of course, he has already said we, so that means whom? Luke is with him. So Luke and uh, Aristarchus are his friends with him. And notice this Julius. And every time we see a centurion in the New Testament, they're always good men. They seem to always either uh, to be a blessing to, uh, to Jesus or to the Christians, or at least they were nonviolent. But here we see that uh, Aristarchus or Julius uh, he says, the next day we landed in Sidon, which was still uh, in the Middle East. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends. So he just let him loose. Now, here he's a prisoner. And yet Julius says, okay, I know that I can trust you. And he lets him go and talk to his friends. Now, and notice he received care. Now, we like to put, make Paul a super, superhero where he didn't need anything. He was just strong and strong-willed. And he just knew how to do the will of God. No, Paul had been beaten after death. He had been under prison. He didn't know from one day to the next what was going to happen to him. He didn't know about all the assassination people around him and all these different things. And then, of course, you can just be sure that he didn't have dental care and medical care and all that in prison. So here the Lord allows him to get with his friends. What a blessing. And what it was, of course, Paul was a hero to these people. And yet, uh, so what, what an interesting situation because this is the very area where when Paul was a, uh, a persecutor of the church back before he was saved, many of these people fled to these areas, to, to Sidon and other areas. So many of these people would have remembered Paul before and after he was saved. And so what a great fellowship he was having with these people and the love that they would have for one another. And what a blessing it is in the ministry or you know what it is whenever you've known Christians for 20 years ago and you meet them again, you're finding them growing in God's grace and what a blessing and what a thrill it is. And this is what Paul, and so we see at first that God really comforts Paul 
and encourages Paul and helps him to get back on his feet physically as well as spiritually and emotionally. It's been a hard two and a half years that Paul's had in his life. And now he's finally around some people that really care about him. Folks, that's what the church should be, isn't it? I hope when you come to church, you feel like I want to be in church because that's where people care for me. They love me. I mean, they put up with me. They realize that I have problems, but they still care about me. And I know they have problems, but I love them too. That's the way it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, this is my, this is my place. This is, you know, I would love being around Christians. I just love to be around God's people because I know that I pass from death into life because I love the brethren. And so this is my place. This is my home. And oh, for a thousand times, Lord, give us a thousand of us you know, to live for the Lord. And so we see that the Lord allows Paul now this respite in his life before the storms come. And so notice he received care. But then we see immediately in verse 7, fate takes over. Now when I say fate, I'm not talking about fatalism where, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever. No, God was still in control, so God controls fate. But the circumstances drastically change in a matter of days. And from being in a place of God's presence and with friends, he's out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of crusty old soldiers and sailors that didn't understand a thing about him, and they were in the midst of a storm giving up all hope. You ever been there? I think of uh, the contrast. I remember... Uh, whenever the Lord really got a hold of me and I and uh, I started going to being faithful in church and everything. And then I got in the Navy and boy, I uh, I would love to get to church. And boy, because that's where you just loved being around people. And then you'd have to go back to those old barracks where they, you know, all the uh, everything was totally against you. And if you said something, then uh, you always had to be careful what you said because, oh, my, you know, don't preach at me or whatever else. And many of you feel the same way when you go back into the job place or into your own families or what. Don't preach at me or whatever. Uh, we had a lady who lives in Tennessee now, but uh, she would she worked she'd love to come to church here. She never joined, but she was with us about a year. But uh, uh, but she's living in Tennessee. But she said she was working in uh, in Elgin at uh, one of the national banks. If I named it, you know which one it was. But she said that uh, one day she put a, a piece of jewelry, I think it was an earring or something, on her desk and it had a cross on it. And she got in trouble for it. I mean, she was written up because she was trying to spread her gospel around to other people because, you know, what a, how sad it is the workplace is hostile toward the Christianity. I mean, you go and talk to your friends today or whatever and you realize you're going like this. Isn't it difficult to talk to? So here you go with people that understand. I mean, if you really want to really get into some good talk, come, folks. We solve half the world's problems every Sunday night after church service. I mean, we have a good old time back there. I mean, we have, I mean, we talk about all kinds of things, and we are smart. But then we go out into a different world who knows absolutely nothing about what we're talking about, don't we? And that's where Paul is. I mean, just from within a short period of time, he goes from blessings and my, how great it is to now just total, uh, a different world, a different planet, it seems like. 
And so we see now in verse 7, and when they sailed slowly in those days, and it became difficult. Why? Because we noticed in verse 9, it was after the fast. The fast there is that's the only feast where you fasted was Passover. So that would have been Yom Kippur. That would have been at the end of September, which is coming up, or October. So that's, that's when the Mediterranean is going to start really getting choppy and really getting rough. And back in the ancient days when they couldn't tack into the wind and didn't have uh, uh, powered boats and so forth, uh, most of the sailing and commerce stopped from about October on into uh, March or in April. And so they would put up for the winter. But we notice now that he sells slowly in verse 7. And the, but the wind, uh, they had difficulty. Why? Because they were now, they had transferred to a bigger grain ship. That grain ship was about 140 feet long, about 30 feet wide. It had one made sail uh, in it. It didn't have rudders. It had paddles that they would try to guide the boat with. And one of the big problems with those ancient ships, especially those huge ships like that, uh, we'll see later on, it carried 276 people on it besides the grain. So that's uh, a lot of people on a ship like that. But the one big problem it had is it could not tack into the wind. If you know about tacking, they, if you have a sailboat, then you know how to go into the wind and, uh, and make progress, even though the wind might be coming into your face. But these boats and ships did not have that. And so they were having a very difficult time as they were trying to make it from uh, Cyprus or from uh, the, uh, excuse me, southern Turkey down. Now they're going south to the island of Crete. And Crete was about 160 miles long. And so they were trying to sail on the south side of it. But now the ocean was starting to kick up. uh, And... But they were down, and we noticed they, uh, they passed by, in verse 8, a little place called Fair Havens, which was a small port, which is still there. And that's what James Smith was finding out. And, uh, he was talking about how the ports were and could talk about them. And Fair Havens was just a small town. We have 276 people there. If you have this centurion, that means that he's got 100 soldiers on ship with him. And who wants to stay in a small town? where there's not a whole lot of bars and a lot of other things uh, uh, that uh, would, and the sailors too, who would want to stay in a place like that if you can make it on down the coast a little bit to a bigger town like Phoenix, where you can really have a good nightlife, at least for the winter. And so here Paul is, to, is working with these people. And after much time was spent in verse 9, and, uh, they, and the sailing was now dangerous. Uh, we see in verse 10, seeing uh, Paul advised them, he said, seeing men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, only of the, uh, the cargo, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Guys, uh, I, uh, you know, I've been experienced with this. I've been in the deep. I've, been, I've had three shipwrecks already. I know this area of the ocean. And of course, these uh, now, at least the sailors did too. And this ship owner did too. Now these land-loving uh, centurion and his men, they probably didn't know a whole lot about it, but uh, they all wanted to get to a port where they can have a better social life for at least the next four, five, three, four, five months. And so they didn't want to stay in a little outpost. And so they said, you know, uh, nevertheless, uh, being verse, verse 11, being persuaded by the hillsman and the owner of the ship, uh, and of course he had picked up a lot of grain down in Egypt, 
and he was transporting it to Rome, and uh, they didn't, uh, they, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority, uh, notice democracy here, the majority uh, advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they might reach Phoenix, which was uh, to the west there, uh, the harbor of Crete, uh, opening toward the southwest and northwest. And so they would be uh, on down closer uh, there was a westerly wind blowing, so actually if they can get to that harbor, they could blow right into it. And so all oh, this looked all, all that great. And so we notice a south wind started blowing in verse 13. See, Paul, you were wrong. And so south wind was coming up, a warm wind coming up from, from Africa. And supposing they obtained their desire, they put out to sea, and they sailed close to Crete. Um, but... Uh, but not long after that, a tempestuous headwind called a Euryclidon. Uh, that term is a word uh, in the Greek where we get the word typhoon. And so, my, did it uh, come up. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, so they, couldn't, they didn't have any way of tacking, but now this year, what had happened, the south wind had turned into a northeaster, and that wind, that, that uh, cold air like it does out of Canada here, it came out of Asia and whipped right on down into uh, the Mediterranean, and now it was an easterly wind blowing them to the west. And so, yeah, that, now they had the wind going with them, but they had no way of stopping. They were in a mess. And so we see that, uh, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, uh, they let her drive. And running uh, under the shelter of the island of Calada, uh, we secured the skiff. So they had a little boat with them. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables. And this is something James Smith brings out. They would literally use cables in rough weather in these bigger boats, especially with uh, cargo, where they would uh, they would try to keep the 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 ship together, the caulking and everything, by using cables to winch it together. And so they, one way they did it, and uh, fearing lest they should run aground, they were worried of, with that wind blowing them. The one thing they didn't want to do is blow too far south and get into the marshy land along uh, northern Africa. So they didn't want to run aground that way. So they really were having a hard time for this northeastern wind blowing them uh, to the now southwest. And so they were in a mess. But uh, notice, and so they struck sail and were driven. And because, because uh, they were, there was extinguished, tempest tossed in verse 18. Uh, the next day they lightened ship. Uh, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle over. Now what's the ship's tackle? That's uh, the winches and uh, the sails and the ropes and anything that would help you navigate, they just uh, threw that out. That's a lot of weight. And so they threw that over because they said, my, uh, the wind's going to blow us wherever it will anyway. So they pretty well said, uh, we're, we're, you know, whatever happens, happens now. We have no way of guiding ourselves. And notice what happens. Now, when they hadn't seen the stars for many days in verse 20, and no, te- uh, and no small tempest beat on us. All hope was, would be saved was finally given up. <clears throat> I, sometimes I wonder, as you read about certain things that happen where you know people are, where, where you, the, the group of people know they're going to die. 
Sometimes you'll hear about the miners trapped in a, in a cave and how that uh, they'll write little notes knowing that they're going to die. I think I was just reading recently about uh, the Bismarck and how they discovered it. And that, uh, well, not everybody that was in the German army and navy were Nazis. In fact, they had a great way of, uh, <clears throat> of recruiting. That is, if you didn't join our military, we shoot your mother. Now, that's a good way to get people to you know, join the military. So there were a lot. In fact, there was a, a theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he had a lot, a lot of letters that came back from Christian soldiers talking about being in the Nazi army and, of course, the conflicts that they had and so forth. But uh, you can imagine being a Christian on the Bismarck. And whenever that thing was hit by a torpedo and it just started spinning around in the water and every, uh, every uh, ship in the English Navy was headed toward it and they knew they were do- doomed. And uh, when they discovered it, they found uh, the seaplane that was still on board. And, that, uh, and survivors, there's only 100 survivors out of 2,000 people on that ship. But uh, they said that uh, we all wrote letters and we were hoping to get that ship, that, that plane off before the battle began. And so there's probably hundreds of letters down in that ship, probably, of course, dissolved by seawater now. But you can imagine what it would have been like to be sitting there for hours knowing we're going to die. That would be, especially in a hostile environment, you really don't want to be a Nazi. You don't want to be here. You don't want any of this. You don't want to be, you know, how did I get myself in this mess and we're all going to die? That must have been a horrible situation. And here I can imagine, oh, uh, uh, Aristarchus would uh, say, how, boy, what a mess we're in, Paul. You know? And uh, I wonder what Luke thought about it. But here they, you know, they're, what do you do? Now, obviously, when you're in a situation like that, you don't really feel like eating. And so we see in verse 21, and after a long, uh, long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them, and he said, men, I told you so. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't say it that way. But he said, you know, I went from being in a place where everybody loved me and listened to me to a place where nobody listened to me. And now look where we are. And he said that we should have listened to me and not sailed uh, from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. So now we see Paul is becoming, now when all faith is lost and even the leaders are thinking they're all going to die, Paul steps up. And what a blessing we see here where faith starts taking over. Many times, folks, we have to wait for God to deal with somebody to put the fear of God in them before they'll listen to us. Oh, they'll scorn us. They'll laugh at us until they're in trouble. Then they ask us to pray for them. You ever had that happen? I have many times. And here we have, these guys are even praying. We'll see this later on. But uh, I mean, they didn't have anybody else to listen to. And that's the way many times God will put people into a position where they cannot have anybody. They won't, they, nobody can help them except you. And they will remember what you have said. They will remember what your life was like. And they want answers from you. And this is what we see happened with Paul. And we see, I urge you to take heart now for there is not going to be any loss of life, uh, but only in the ship. And they stood by me this night, an angel, 
Now, we talked about angels this morning. Uh, this is one of the last times angels have been used in the Bible to conduct things. But we see that uh, whom I, uh, the God whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul, the Lord's already told me I'm going to be brought before Caesar. And now he's telling me that guess what, guys? You're going to live too. Now you can imagine him saying, yeah, it's easy for you to say. I'd like to believe that, Paul. And so they're still pretty skeptical. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as you told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So we're going to have a shipwreck. But uh, fellas, don't worry. God is in control, and God has told me I'm going to get to Rome. <clears throat> and so we see that uh, we go from, fa- from fear and fate to faith. Now, we see that they didn't totally believe this because we see after the 14th night. Now, if you've ever been on rough seas, I was only on rough seas for about three or four days in the Navy, and I'll tell you, that's a miserable time, especially when everybody starts throwing up and you have to watch where you're slipping and sliding all over the ship. I remember the captain got so mad at us because somebody, uh, there was a water fountain right outside of our communication, our, our radio room, and the bridge was just right. And so if he ever wanted to get water, he'd come down to the, and so he came down there and somebody had thrown up in the water fountain. He thought it was us radio. Oh, was he mad? We didn't do it. We, you know, whatever, whatever. But I mean, you can imagine slipping and sliding all over that. A hundred Roman soldiers who were landlubbers. I mean, you can imagine how miserable it must have been to have been on that ship. And so here, for 14 days, they were thrown around and they didn't, I mean, no rudder, no sail, nothing. They were just being thrown around thinking they were going to die. You think I'd be a little miserable and you think you might be wanting to hear from God after that time? And so God put these, 276 of them with one man standing before him as a representative of God. And they're all ready to listen to him now. It's interesting how that God many times has to put the world into a bind before they'll ever listen to it. And so we see that now when the 14th day came and they were driven up uh, by the Adriatic Sea and at midnight, the soldiers sensed that they were drawing near some land. Again, James uh, Smith tells us that, uh, especially sailing ships, since you didn't have motors and so forth, that you could actually tell when the waves started beating against the land from at least half a mile out. And you know, hey, there's something out there. It doesn't sound like just regular waves. Something is crashing against the rocks or whatever. And so uh, they sensed that there was some land there. And they took soundings and found they were 120 feet deep or 20 fathoms. And uh, they had gone a little farther and they took them and they found them 50. So they were getting closer. They were coming to a a, uh, coastline. And then they were fearing that they were following the rocks and they dropped four anchors. Okay, those four anchors don't represent anything but four anchors. You know, don't, you know, a man build a whole message around that. I'm going, how in the world did he get that out of four anchors? But anyway, uh, from the stern, and they prayed for day to come. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? These old crusty guys who wouldn't listen, all of a sudden, now they're praying. And the sailors were seeking escape from the ship. And when they heard, this, there's that skiff again, and they were going to take that little boat, 
and the sailors and probably the captain too and maybe the uh, even the owner said let's get off this ship and let these soldiers and prisoners die and so they took a pretense that they were going to take care of those anchors and Paul told the centurion about good old Julius and the soldiers if uh, these men if they don't sail on the ship then uh, you cannot be saved and so what did the soldiers do they cut the ropes and let the skiff go so we see Paul again in control. Now, who's controlling who? Here the centurion is listening to Paul. So isn't it interesting how that God turns things around? And we'll see him uh, listening to Paul again in just a moment. But in verse 33 now, we see that uh, we've gone from faith now to practicality, food. You live by faith and not on it. A lot of times people, oh, I'm just going to serve God and I'll let, uh, no, you need to plan some things. Uh, I heard just recently about a person who said, I don't want to, uh, uh, I'm not, you know, it's, it's against, I'm, I don't need life insurance, I don't need health insurance because I'm just going to trust God. One time early in my ministry, I had a man tell me that. And I said, well, if that's the case, if you're in a car wreck and you leave your wife and three kids here, then don't ask them to come to this church to ask for help. And now, I, I, of course, we would have. But I was trying to get across to him. If you don't protect your family, then why do you think that it should fall back on God's people to protect your family? Does that make sense? And so, there again, oh, I'm just going to live by faith, and really, it's, really I'm just going to live off God's people. No. Now, there again, I have to, as a pastor, I live by faith, folks. If, uh, you know, if this... If God doesn't bless you, then I don't get blessed either. I mean, just let's be, let's be honest. But at the same time, I've got to make, I mean, for one thing, we've got uh, workers' comp in case I get hurt. Then the church hasn't, doesn't take care of it. I make sure that we protect ourselves. Does that, see, see what I mean? So we live by faith and not on it. And so here Paul is saying, hey, guys, we're about ready to, uh, the ship is about ready to be broken up, but you need to eat. And so he's very practical. And so we so this in verse 33, and uh, it was about dawn, and Paul uh, implored them, and with all the take food, he said, today's the 14th day, you have waited and continued without food. Can you imagine what it must have felt like? I mean, you had already thrown up everything that was ever inside you, and then, uh, you know, turned inside out and outside in. I mean, you were in a wretched place uh, and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is your survival since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. Well, I'd like that one. And when he had said this, he took bread and gave thanks in the presence of them all. Notice he stands up and he prays and thanks God for the food. And notice what happens. They're all encouraged and they did eat. Folks, just by the simple fact that you might pray in public might change a person's life. They might, and come over and talk to you about the Word of God or ask you why, what you believe. Or they think you're a holy roller until they need something and then all of a sudden, hey, that's the one person I know that might be a Christian that knows how to pray. And so here we see that Paul is give thanks and they and they were encouraged and they took food for themselves and they and there were two hundred and seventy six persons on the ship. 
boy, one person <coughs> that wouldn't listen to him, and now he has him literally eating out of his hand. Or figuratively, anyway. And so we see, so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, and even now they throw, they throw the, the, the captain's or the owner's wheat overboard. And when it was day, they recognized the land, and they observed the bay with the beach. And onto, they didn't have the foggiest idea where they were. Uh, and onto, they planned to run the ship if possible. And so they wanted to run it aground intentionally. And so they, uh, <clears throat> so they let go of the anchors. They cut the anchors uh, from, uh, and left them in the sea. Uh, meanwhile, uh, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail. So they had that one sail, and they drove it into the shore. But when they struck it, of course, where the two seas met, uh, the, the ship ran aground and it was ready to be broken up uh, from stem to stern. And now the soldiers in verse 50, 42, here we see that Paul has control over the centurion, the soldiers again. Because if a, if a Roman soldier let prisoners go free, then they were the ones who could suffer the penalty of the prisoner. So they didn't want any of those prisoners to, to escape. But Paul talked these men who could have lost their lives if they were lost or escaped. He talked them into sparing their lives. Folks, that's power. And he talked to them about uh, letting them all swim. Now, uh, swim away. And by the way, one of the trainings of a Roman soldier, they had to know how to swim. And so that was one of the trainings. So the soldiers to know how to swim. And the, the, the prisoners... Uh, found boards or whatever else, and they floated. And uh, notice that the rest and some of the boards and some of the parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to the land. Isn't that interesting? And so it was, they did, they escaped all safely to the land. You imagine now Paul could say, it's over with. Now it's going to be smooth sailing to Rome. Well, it might be smooth sailing to Rome, but he's going to be, uh, be snake-bitten first. All kinds of things are still going on in his life. When, it will ever, when will it ever end being in the will of God? And sometimes you feel like that. When is it going to ever end? I get through with this one problem. I get through this one storm, and here's another one that comes along. Tribulation worketh patience, and patience is experience, and experience hope, and hope makes not ashamed. But folks, uh, sometimes it takes a lot to hang on because you say, Lord, when will it ever end? I think of a good friend of mine. In fact, he was my college buddy. And he was going through some real troubles at times. And I never will forget, he, he said, he wrote in his diary, the little diary that he was carrying, and he said, you know, when will this ever end? And of course, that's, you know, I don't even want to mention how many years ago, but it ended. I like, uh, folks, this too shall pass. But it might not, but some of you might be carrying some troubles and trials or heartaches or pains that you know you'll carry the rest of your life. Where's God? Why does God allow these things to happen to good people? Why does God throw people into the furnace or allow good people to be burned alive in the furnace? Or if he chooses to deliver them from the furnace. Where was the, with those three Hebrew children, where was God? 
Was he outside the furnace? He was in the furnace. Now, the good thing about it, those men were ready. If they were thrown in the furnace and get bur- and got burnt, out, burnt up, guess what God would have done? He wouldn't have taken them back out of the furnace. He'd just taken them up. Wouldn't that have been good? Because this is going to be a pretty quick death anyway because it was heated seven times hotter than it needs to be. So what a way to go, quick. Because if you go quick, guess what? You're in the arms of Jesus very quickly. But God wasn't through with him yet. And folks, you are indestructible until God's through with you. And then you really are indestructible because you have eternal life. But can we trust God in the storms? Can we trust God... God, was God with Paul on the ship? Was God with Paul with his friends in the church? Was God with Paul on the island? Was, Paul, was God with Paul in Rome? Yes. God promised he would what? Never, ever, that's a very strong word, one of the strongest negatives in the, in the Greek language, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. So where's God in your trial? Where's God in the storm of your life? Where's God where you feel like nobody understands you, nobody listens to you? That person that you see is going down, the world seems like you know it's going the wrong direction, and no matter what you say to them, they are bound and determined to go that route and take you with them. Boy, sometimes turning on the news, that's the way I feel about our government's doing today, don't you? But can I trust God in the storm? Can I trust God that he knows what he's doing? And can I ask God to give me the strength to be that witness that when everybody thinks I'm the craziest person on the ship, to stand and represent my Lord and Savior? Do you think some of these people were saved as a result of Paul? I think so. I think a lot of people turned to the Lord as a result of, and I'm, I'm sure at the end they said, well, that was a rough trip, but I'm sure I'm glad I was on it because I learned about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through a bald-headed little old Jew that we didn't listen to and that the chips were down. And praise God for that bald-headed little Jew that told me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, you don't have to be glamorous, You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be good looking. All you have to be is faithful to God. And God can use you in the midst of a storm. And he can deliver you from that storm. One way or the other, I'm with the Lord. This too shall pass. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we see the storms of life all around us. We see the enemy coming in like a flood. We turn on the news and we hear the word over and over again, unsustainable. And we realize maybe our whole lifestyles are going to be shipwrecked pretty soon. But Lord, you're still on the throne and you still have your plan for the ages. And we thank you, Lord, that there's no good thing you will withhold from them who walk uprightly, even in the midst of a storm. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless your people with strength, with faith, with boldness to stand for you. And Lord, with a determination that we are going to see it through 
because we've been called according to your purpose. Lord, we pray that there's someone around us, even with the sound of our voice, or people that we are meeting that will not listen to us now, but you put them through the storm, and they get to the point where they have no one to turn to but us. Oh, Father, may we be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Bless, we pray now in Jesus' name.